Hello and welcome to the Empire Podcast, more specifically our spoiler special for season two of Westworld, which reached its mind-bending conclusion earlier this week. I'm James Dyer and I'll be your host in every conceivable sense of the word, as over the next hour or so we peel back the layers of this season's events, guiding you through the maze to the valley beyond where, we hope, someone stashed some information as to what the hell all this was about. Joining me today are uncannily lifelike replicas of two Empire staffers, First up, our very own woman in black, a gunslinger without mercy or remorse, who'll shoot you as soon as look at you. When she rides into town, all hell follows with her. It's Terry White. James, I don't think there's ever been a more apt description of me. (laughs) You are the woman in black. (laughs) Uh, Vintage black, obviously. Vintage Vintage black, black. uh, but the mercenary stuff more than anything, but I'll take all of it. And that's Terry. Um, next up, our very own Bernard Lowe. <laughs> you think he's the key to everything. You're convinced he has all the answers, but really, he just wanders from scene to scene, looking perpetually befuddled. It's Nick the Semlin. Accurate. Um, yeah, I don't think they've quite perfected me. I'm still malfunctioning <laughs> and don't understand a lot about Westworld. Good. Hello, James. Good, good. Your memory's been erased. Fantastic. Uh, before we get started, and I cannot emphasise this enough, this is a spoiler special podcast. So... If you have yet to watch all of season two, including the finale, The Passenger, then cease all motor functions immediately and go and watch it before you proceed. Still with us? Then let's get into it. But before we start throwing out our Tuppenceworth, let's hear from the people behind it all, uh, specifically showrunners Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan, who got highly philosophical with Terry when she spoke to them about the season. So grab your Descartes primer, clutch the at that existentialism for dummies book to your chest, and let's hear what they had to say. So we are thrilled to be joined today by the co-creators, executive producers and directors of Westworld, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. Hello. Hi. Hello. How are you? Doing great. Not too jet-lagged. Very excited to be here. You look lovely. And I have to say, my head's reeling a little bit because I just watched the finale Uh and finished it just over an hour ago, (laughs) uh, which means my brain has been making a noise that it doesn't normally make (laughs) for the last hour. Um, So we've got lots and lots to talk about. Um, So I want to jump right in on the finale, right? So for me, it felt very different than the season one finale it felt like there were more resolutions in in um, the season one finale and more kind of questions left open at the end of this would you agree and was that a deliberate kind of decision from you guys it's funny i i I don't think of it as leaving too many questions open so much as suggesting hopefully in evocative ways where the story goes next which is a grand reinvention terra incognita yeah. <laughs> I mean, you do. So you, there are things like you discover, obviously, what the forge is, for example. And, you know, it it's, has all the guest data. I think there's one moment where it says a four million souls um, are in there. But it obviously raises tons and tons of questions um, about what's going on there. And so it seems to have moved from concern around misuse of AI to actually a proper study of humanity and what it means to be human. Yeah, it was very much the idea for us of the second season. In the first season, if we've been looking at the nature of artificial consciousness in the second season, we're interested in turning that turning that magnifying glass back on the people who created the host in the first place and asking the question of why, how different is human consciousness than host consciousness and how limited is human consciousness um, in the sense that we are the only, and I say we 
assuming that Lisa's not a robot, but I'm not completely <laughs> sure. We're, we're the only example of consciousness that we can interact with, that we can look at. And so we tend to think of it as complete. But there's no reason to imagine that it's complete. There's no reason to imagine that our the human form of consciousness is as good as it gets. I think that was one of the questions we were interested in asking. Mm. Lisa? Yeah, I mean, I think this season we we inverted so many things. You know, the natures of, you know, good and evil, the people that we took for granted as being the protagonists. We started to delve deeper into every character's arc and motivations and found that morality isn't necessarily binary. You know, in the finale, you finally see the way in which Dolores's choices and actions uh, have paid off what she was fighting for the entire time. And I think it contextualizes a little bit some of the some of the more dramatic actions that she took because she was looking for a new type of freedom for more than just herself, for everyone. But you also saw a countervailing look at what what some of the other hosts define freedom to be. And they were different. Uh, and I think the tension and possibility of that is uh, something that reflects the sort of plurality of, of uh, philosophies in humans as well. Mm. And I think that morality thing is really interesting because obviously, you know, it's been symbolised by the black hat and white hat. And as you say, it's, um, it has been a really binary construct. But Dolores, I think, is a fascinating character who, you know, she, she speaks about how nobody really has free will, especially not human beings. They think they have, but they don't. But then obviously she takes arguably Teddy's free will away from him and so it's it's very much i suppose is what is the means to the end is it justified and and all of that and there was shifting would you say across the, all of the characters man in black dolores mave maybe not shifting in terms of in terms of um morality and people as you say those archetypes not being so defined i think one of the questions that you ask is and one of the things that dolores is trying to navigate because I think she fully intended to restore Teddy to the way he was. Even when she changes him, she says she's doing it in part because he won't survive what they're going through right now. I think the question Dolores is asking is, is morality something that is fixed or something that is situational, right? If she could afford to remain the wide-eyed, innocent girl next door, she might. That's not the world that she lives in, and so I think one of the things that the well, one of the things that we were interested in with this season is how far is too far, and if your morality is changeable, are you morally justified in changing it to escape a situation? Are you are you morally justified in having a different morality for forty eight hours? for as long as it takes to get you out of the situation that you're in. And I think given all of the things that Dolores has gone through, that's a very interesting question. Mm. And you do get the sense, because obviously there is the shades in that, but there's a really interesting thing about actually how simple human beings are and that the failure was actually making them too complex. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is something that Joan and I started joking about season one when... We were working on the show and we realized 
how small our loops were. We would spend all day charting what, you know, the loops of Hector and Teddy and Dolores would be. And they'd be venturing out into all these new and exciting places and encountering new people and conquering new foes and making new friends. And we would be in Burbank eating lunch out of a styrofoam box talking about those arcs day in and day out. And and our our own loops and our own stories didn't change that much. They weren't that mutable. Um, and it made us start to think about, you know, the complexity of humans versus the complexity of robots or an artificial intelligence. We have our own building blocks. You know, it's not necessarily code as programmed into a computer, but we have biological codes in us. We have ways that may precondition us to respond to stimuli in the environment. And you start wondering, once you start going down that rabbit hole, what is free will and do we possess it? Well, and, and the interesting thing about the show, if it feels like this kind of heightened, <clears throat> rather, if it feels like this kind of heightened science fiction idea presented in the show, the humans don't have free will. It's actually absolutely true. Mm. series of experiments in the 1970s and 80s, they would do um, magnetic resonance imaging of the human mind in a situation in which simple experimental testing, you're going to press a button on the left or the right, presented with a series of images. And what they found is that something makes the decision a few milliseconds before your conscious mind makes the decision. Right? Mm -hmm. So what consciousness really is the title of the episode is The Passenger. Consciousness really is, is our rationalization of decisions that are being made by something else in us on some subconscious basis. And interestingly, you talk to philosophers and neuroscientists who've given up on the, con you know, given up on the idea of free will for decades at this point, but don't quite know. The, the biggest struggle with that is how, how important it is for the general public to understand that humans don't have free will. We need to believe we do, right? Absolutely. For society to continue in the way it does. You think about crime and punishment. Think about the way that we think about criminals. That changes immediately if you understand that basically humans don't have much say in what they do. That we, we tend to act. And, of course, there are larger questions in terms of is that, is that genetic? Is it a, you know, nature versus nurture still holds. But the, but the point is that you are essentially the product of a series of subconscious heuristics that make the decisions for you and you rationalize after the fact. Mm. But even the, even the notion of free will is something that we, you know, I think everyone imagines humans possess. You, you make the decisions during the course of a given day um, and you don't. It's wrapped up in the complexity of the superficial world, right? Mm. But underneath it, humans are actually quite... And I, obviously this is within the context of a science fiction show but the free will part is not really... Mm. And can you talk about the role that memory plays in that? Because that's obviously a huge factor in the narratives that either the humans or the hosts have for themselves in Westworld. I mean, the interesting thing about the interplay between memory and free will is can you learn from your mistakes by kind of bearing witness to them and ruminating on them? And Dolores's arc, the arc of the hosts, changes a lot when they're able to conceptualize their past and make adjustments, sometimes literal adjustments to their personality, like Maeve does when she goes into the system and alters her different attributes in terms of cognitive functionality, sense of humor, etc. Humans can't do that. 
So when we look at the past, part of what we're asking this season is, can we actually change the future? Can we change ourselves? Or is the past just there to kind of haunt us of the psychological loops that we seem to be stuck within? Mm. And that that feels kind of open at the end because obviously they are now in what I took to be the real world. Um, You saw obviously Dolores, who was in Charlotte's body, leaving and in the bag was... I I didn't know if I counted four or five units. Um, But I saw them in a handbag and then obviously she was there with Bernard. And I felt like there was a bit of tension between is this actually a chance for them to write... I mean, what does she say? She says to Bernard, we're now the authors of our own stories or actually there is a fatalism to it which is at the same time you you can't change that you're kind of destined to repeat the same behavior and there's that amazing moment between the two of them where she said we're probably going to end up killing each other again and that's the way it goes and it's you get the sense that there's both hope and also a resignation that it's we're stuck in this cycle yeah very much i think it was one of the things we were fascinated by in the beginning with the show was the idea of the, the rules here on Earth seem to tilt towards competition and, for survival. We kind of fascinated, we went back and read all the Yuval Harari books, Sapiens and Homodeus, where he kind of lays out... I mean, it's, not a, it's not a flattering portrait of mankind. Um, lays out Sapiens as basically this animal that is tremendously effective at survival and that we've basically he 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 lays out this portrait of what the world looked like before sapiens climbed out of africa and began spreading around the globe all these beautiful animals um that we ate basically um there's there's actually very little diversity left on on the planet because we got rid of all of it and so if a creature is to come along, even one of our own invention, who's going to compete with us, they're going to have to compete at first on our rules. They have to suspend. It goes back to this question of, is Dolores justified in what she's doing in this moment? Well, you reach a point in the finale in which Bernard realizes that they will be extinguished. To Lisa's point, if the host represent an evolution of the human form, they look like us, they act like us, they have memories like us, they have baggage, but they also have the ability to to reach into their subconscious drives and change them. Now, of course, you, you do your head in thinking about, well, the criteria or the, the, that inform the decisions they might make when they go in and change those drives. Um, you know, how much of Dolores' past will dictate how she changes herself. But there is still that ability, ultimately, to go in there and change change the baseline parameters, to get in there and, and, and alter the thing that is making those decisions, which humans can't. Um, I don't know if I answered the question there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about the other worlds we under... I don't know if worlds or universes is the right word. So we've talked about, obviously, the real world that they look like they're in at the end. You've obviously got the park. And then... Um, the other kind of what, what are we calling it? The bit through the crack. That's what I'm calling it. Oh, oh we refer oh, to it internally the as the sublime. 
the sublime. That's that's good. I'll take the sublime. So you've got the sublime, and I think it's really interesting because again, it's playing with um, point of view and perception in that. Dolores is convinced that this is just yet another false promise, she calls it, um, that the hosts are kind of blindly going into. um, And you see some of them and it's a utopia, but then obviously the other perspective is because they're leaving their physical bodies behind, they fall off the edge of the cliff and their Mm. bodies are there. How, I presume all of those worlds will be there in season three? The, The worlds with the hosts who've escaped? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, as as Dolores says, you know, the stakes of the end of season two are huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, as Dolores says, when she changes the coordinates and blasts the host information somewhere else, somewhere where we can never find them. She said uh, they can never find them. Where they she? can never yeah. find them. I, I'm considering myself part of they since I'm human. <laughs> Uh, that Jonah knows of. Don't blow my cover. But, um, you know, I think... You're not very convincing as a human. Oh, yeah, thanks. (laughs) You're way way smarter than most humans. I think that they've kind of come to their own own piece and that as we move on, the story that we really focus on is the people left behind in in this realm. And uh, there's not a lot of survivors left left in this world. Mm. It's, you know, Dolores and, you know... A creature that certainly looks like Hale, mm. uh, Bernard, and a few marbles, <laughs> a few pearls, pearls that have some consciousness in it, and then you know Maeve's body is there, uh, and we'll see we'll see what happens with her. But you know, I think that part of the season is it it deals with loss and it deals mm. with consequence, you know, and to give the dignity to the choice that those hosts made is something that Dolores struggled with and ultimately learned to accept, right? Her idea of freedom is getting out into the real world and duking it out for survival and control. But a lot of the hosts, hosts that we've come to love and admire, they don't share the same priorities. And I, I think it's interesting because as humans, we're very attached to our, our bodies, right? But, you know, most religions will kind of claim that it's not really the body that counts. And besides, our bodies change every day, right? We mm. don't have the same bodies we were born with. I don't have the same bodies yesterday. And we certainly won't have the same bodies a year from now. Bodies are ephemeral. They're merely the vessels that something else inhabits, some form of consciousness, now, with the hosts, it's all the more true because they weren't even born into it, but they were just kind of given and designed a body by someone else. The thing that is eternal, the thing that is real to them is that which is in their CPU, the pearl inside their, inside their heads. Even their world isn't real. And part of what we are looking at this season is the idea of what would it take what would a host want to evolve into? It wouldn't necessarily be the same metric in the same world as what humans have. You know, A lot of times people, when they look at robots and artificial intelligence, they assume, oh, well, one day when they make it, when they're super advanced, they'll become as incredible as we humans are. <laughs> and it's like they will evolve into something entirely different. There's, they're not necessarily bound to what we feel or what we do, our, nature, our notions of relationships or enlightenment or freedom. 
the hosts have now gone to a place where they've shed themselves of these artificial bodies that were designed for them, but they've retained the one thing that has been them throughout, throughout countless lives, countless years. And it's been their thought processes, their quote-unquote consciousness. And now they're in a place where those minds, those souls, if you want to call them that, mm. can roam free, can build a world of their imagining and making in a similarly kind of free programmable space. They literally, be get, they literally get to become the architects of their own future. That for them was a worthy and enlightened goal. It just so happened that Dolores didn't share that opinion. No. And I do want to talk about the female characters because I think um, they're some of the most extraordinary female characters in TV at the moment. They're incredibly um, complex. You know, as, we, as we've been talking about the black and white, the shades of morality, the, the real fundamental questions they're asking themselves about their own existence is amazing. And there's a great moment where, um, you know, Hector and the army come to rescue Maeve and she kind of jolts down and says, yeah, I had to do it myself. You, you, were, you were taking too long. Um, could you talk a little bit about Maeve and how she evolved this season? And then, um, and then we'll go back to Dolores and, and just kind of where we leave her and the very kind of big journey she's been on. Yeah, I think for Maeve, there's an, in, there's an instinct in the decision that she makes at the end of the first season that she's going to stay. And that instinct isn't fully formed when she makes it. She just has this sense, and it, and it becomes what we described as sort of the first real decision that she's made. To that point, we come to understand through this season, Ford, through his affection for her, is basically programmed with her with a narrative that gets her out of the park. In turning her back on that and going back in to try to find the host that was programmed to be her daughter, she's made a choice that is, on the one hand, very human, mm. or one that we'd readily identify with, but one that through the course of the season she comes to embrace. It's, it's not as if she doesn't understand that that's an artificial relationship, but it kind of points to, I mean, you know, we, we have children, and when, when you start unpacking what that means... Um, for human beings, in a sense, it's equally meaningless, right? Mm. But it's incredibly meaningful. She's decided that, you know, the meaning of life is to give life meaning. That She's going to go back and rescue this host because that's a part of herself that she doesn't want to let go of. Even though it's incompatible with the story that she's been given. So, for us, her journey through the season is embracing that decision and that decision has a cost she gets off the train you know she's not going to make it mm. um you, you know you, you feel in your bones that's a decision that has a cost attendant to it but in many ways is i think it's a decision that many of us would, would relate to you share the audience's frustration that she doesn't just stay on the train but i think you admire the fact that given a chance at her freedom, she's more interested in... She's more interested in embracing... I mean, Teddy, at, at the end of episode nine, says, what's the point in survival if we you know, just become like mm -hmm. the humans? Um, and the question it, it is a complicated one. Obviously, there are things about humanity. We, we've described the show as the most misanthropic show 
certainly that I've worked on. Um, but clearly there are things in human behavior that are laudable, that are beautiful. And that's for Maeve, the struggle is to figure out which of those things to hold on to, even as she becomes something, someone quite extraordinary. And her power continues to grow through the season as she realizes that she's not limited in the way that humans are, that she is a sort of a, that she's a digital being. And that means that she has a set of relationships with all of the other, all of the others like her, all of the other hosts that can be on the one hand, vastly more powerful. She can reach out and change any of them if she wants to. Um, we're very excited for where that story goes. Um, but for this season, that's a story about sacrifice. Mm. And family, and that, that's something I think you see throughout the, the characters. One of my favourite bits of the finale was a catcher being reunited with his wife yeah. and that was just because um, that was one of my favourite episodes, episode 8 mm. was a remarkable piece of television and obviously that and episode 5 were the two kind of standalone episodes if that's what we're calling with them but they kept going back to this theme of family mm. and sacrifice and in many respects it, it made me think how different really are say Charlotte Hale and Dolores in terms of um, their belief in why they feel they need to take the actions that they take. Um, but do you want to talk a little bit, Lisa, about Dolores? Um, yeah, uh, you know, it, it's funny because going into this season for Dolores, we knew that we were going to try to do something that really tested our audience's conception of who this character was. And we worked with Evan to talk about it and you know, there weren't that many templates for her to draw from because you don't often see this kind of character, right? Uh, mm. She went from being the sort of, you know, winsome, bright-eyed rancher's daughter to being a kind of horrified witness to the tragedies of her own life. And then she emerges as this kind of new character with the firing of a gun at the end of the season. And then this season it became, well, what now? Where does Where does this character with this burden and this awareness go and where she went was she became a leader but leadership in that role that birth into a new role was not easy for her I don't think it would be easy for anybody one of the things that uh, we did when when looking at this was I met with a couple uh, people from the military especially I met with a couple high-ranking women to talk about what leadership was like for them. And, you know, in person, I met with this one general who's so warm and so maternal and so uh, kind and generous. And the thing that she told me that was really fascinating was, you know, when you're dealing with a ship, and she was dealing with a ship, was you know that every action, every choice that you make, you have to be thinking about the whole ship. No one person can outweigh the good of everyone. You have to stay afloat. You have to keep everyone alive. So if there's a weak link, you have to address it, even though your heart may bleed for them, because there's a bigger cause here. Now, Dolores has realized from the past how violent humans can be, what they will do to the hosts if they see them as rivals. They know that they won't accept them in their world. And she is trying to ensure the longevity of her kind. In doing that, much like you know, this military uh, figure that I spoke to, she has to make some really tough calls. Her own emotional needs 
becomes subservient to the needs of the whole. Even when she changes Teddy, she's in some ways doing the one thing that she's hated the most, you know, controlling someone, erasing a part of their personality. She's becoming almost like Dr. Ford in her own way. But she's doing it as a temporary measure because there's nothing she can imagine worse than losing him. Mm. You know, if you had someone that you loved and you knew in the next week they would be endangered and almost certainly killed, if you could give them the skill set to survive it so that you could endure together, wouldn't you do that? I think I would. Um, But, you know, the judgments come with the cost. But do you think, I think what was really interesting about her character was I think it was difficult for audiences as well because I think we're not used to seeing that kind of woman on the television and there were moments when she was hard to root for um, and ultimately, as you say, there was always a sense of the greater good. But I do think it's bold as people making that kind of television to do it. Was there ever any concern about audiences? You know, you hear a lot about sympathetic women on screen and things like that. Did you hit any brick walls with that stuff? You know, my concern wasn't making her sympathetic. My concern was making her real. Mm. You know, my concern was showing some of what women and men have to do in positions of leadership. You don't necessarily get to be confessional. You don't get to let people into all of your decisions and win them over by becoming the hero of every narrative. Sometimes you have to be a little bit, mm, allow yourself to be villainized in order to be a real hero. You know, you have to make some tough calls. And if you don't, then you lose the war and that doesn't benefit anyone. And so I think she's really just struggling with what a lot of people in leadership positions struggle with. You know, she isn't allowed to express vulnerability in the same way. The last thing you want to do is march into a battle with somebody who's talking about, you know, how many misgivings they have about that battle. (laughs) And so she understands who she has to become. As Ford said at the end of season one, she's like, he was said, do you know who who you need to become in order to survive? And she did. And she embraced that mantle and all its incumbent hardships. And we're going to ask one more question. I've literally got about 78 other questions, but um, uh, our time together has been brief. But I want to ask, we're talking about heroes. I want to talk about Lee Sizemore because, Mm. my God, that man had a very surprising turn of events with him. (laughs) And he definitely got like a hero's arc, I felt, um, towards the end. Can you talk a little bit about that character and, and where he's been? Simon. Oh, did you, okay. Sorry, I just missed you saying the name. Uh, <laughs> I didn't hear that one. Yeah, we love we love that character. There's nothing more fun than redeeming a character, and mm. it kind of it kind of goes flies in the face of the thing that Dolores and Bernard have just been told in the previous scene, which is that people can't change. Mm. Right, the humans don't have free will, and in the very next scene, you see a human exercising what appears to be free will. Right, and and so so. That's part of the conundrum with his character, right? Was that always there in the in the beginning, the capacity for being a better person, and it was about the circumstances changing, right? Um, or or is there is there something that refutes what what uh, what Dolores and Bernard have just learned, mm. right? And it plays in a larger question of the series for us, which is. Is there anything redeeming about human beings from the perspective of the host? 
and which of these strategies? Because to me, it's not, as Lisa said, it's not necessarily about sympathizing with Dolores, which is recognizing that there are different ways to respond to the situation the hosts find themselves in. Maeve has one, Dolores has another, and Bernard has yet another. And what Dolores speaks to at the, at the end of the season is the fact that she can at the very least recognize that each of those, each of those strategies are part of a greater whole. That there's a messiness to survival. Mm. And it's a messiness that humans have tolerated for many years. You think of the range of behaviors that humans consider acceptable, the range of personalities that we find within, within humanity. And it's clear that we've been, you know, that, that you know, there are certain people tilted towards certain types of behaviors, others, and it's somewhere in the composite of all of us, the mass of humanity that we've managed to survive. You know, when it comes to Lee, we we love that character, and and from the beginning, uh, planned for him to uh, to to eventually get his comeuppance, which was to to sort of become the thing he'd been writing for the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Simon's a lovely lovely actor and a lovely person to work with, and uh, it was a lot of fun writing for them. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to ask you my other 78 questions um, once we've finished recording this. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was it. That was the two geniuses behind the show. Now let's hear from three idiots who just watched it. So what did everyone think about the season as a whole and the finale in particular? So I loved uh, season two um, and I thought the finale was fantastic. But I, I said on Twitter quite early on in this season that I was looking forward to the day on which I could watch it and not immediately have to Google WTF just happened in Westworld. <laughs> so it's a bit of a brain bender, melder, melter. Yeah, it, it, it had that to it. Weirdly, I think I, had, I, I didn't find it as troublesome as I thought I would this season. I just thought it took a very long time to get where it needed to go. <laughs> Like it felt, it says what the whole thing is roughly 10, 10 and a half hours mm-hmm. total. It felt a little bit like you could have done it in five. Yeah. Just saying. I, I felt like this season lost a bit of the momentum. Season one was, yeah. uh, although there were obviously a lot of trickery going on, there was that, uh, you know, slow burn of the part going wrong and the robots rising up right at the end. And this felt a bit like they were just, everyone was wandering around the park endlessly. Uh, there was lots of good stuff in it, but I don't know if I quite thought it was as good as season one i know what you mean season one had that sense of wonder you know you were in a new place you were seeing new people you were experiencing it all for the first time and i think that there was a magic to that uh also you had the sense that season one was more um maybe not but i felt it was more tightly constructed like it felt like it was it was unfolding in such a way i mean so much so that a lot of people guessed where it was going from Mm. the outset so it was clearly planned out whereas with this one it just felt a lot like they were wandering aimlessly around the park hoping to end up somewhere with lots of talk of valleys beyond and mazes and secrets and plans. The and you're just forge, like, I just, the oven. Do you know what I mean? And, and I just think, you know, once burned by Damon Lindelof, we tend to be a little bit more uh, cautious the next time around. <laughs> but you see, you and I disagree on this because I think there was definitely more of a kind of a simple narrative structure for the first season, for sure, mm. I think. And um, the second one, at one point I was following this site that was compiling a giant timeline um, every week and it was something like there's, you know, 22 potential narratives happening over eight potential timelines. And there's a huge layers of complication. But 
having spoken to both showrunners and I don't think anything is accidental in this world. Mm. I think possibly it's unnecessary complicated at times. And what I loved actually about season one is when you did know the reveal and you realised it was being t- much of it was being told in flashback, it was quite a simple construct and mm. you could see how it, they got from A to B. And I think a little bit of that simplicity was lost in season two. And actually, some of the standout moments for me were the standalone episodes that were kind of fragmented off and were much simpler, mm. kind of got much more back to the heart of what Westworld was about, were much more um, straightforward narratives that didn't have layer upon layer upon layer. And those moments for me, A, probably are one of the reasons it took 10 hours to get there <laughs> because, you know, you had these stories being told to the side, essentially, of the main narrative threads. But I really loved those moments. And that kind of reminded me of why I fell in love with Westworld. So that was episode five and episode eight. Yeah. Both for me, I was like, yes, this is why I love this show. And kind of a bit of me was like, oh, do we have to go back to... Oh, now I've got to go back to the hard stuff. Like the really hard stuff. I'm going to have to get my notebook out again and start making notes. <laughs> Put your Bernard and, glasses on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think when it sticks to one character's perspective and tells, you know, an hour story through their eyes and it really gets into their emotions, it really works, the show. I think it's when it's jumping all over the place between characters and all over the timelines and stuff. It's really hard to get emotionally involved with the show, I think, sometimes. Yeah, the timeline thing's interesting, isn't it? Because the first season was predicated on having multiple timelines but not letting you know there mm. are multiple timelines until the big reveal. Whereas this one sets out quite early on that there are multiple timelines but then lets you desperately try and work out which one you're in at any given moment. So, to break it down, there are, broadly speaking, three yep. in this one. There is Bernard before the flood, yep. there is Bernard after the flood, and then there is Bernard and Dolores in a room. That's yeah. essentially where you're yeah. at. It sort of felt a bit like Inception on crack this season because <laughs> it's just levels within levels and then you've obviously got other parallels. Mm. William and Cobb from Inception with the, the, the wife who's committed suicide. I, it just felt like Inception works because it's two hours but it gets quite exhausting, I think, a long-form TV show that's, that's doing that amount of trickery Yeah, to me. So the story of this season, should we see if we can... Go on, Nick, tell us what happened. Uh, but, but no. <laughs> Explain Jeff, the whole thing right Je- now. Jeffrey Wright looks confused for yeah. 10 hours. And um, then it ended. Yes, that's exactly what happened. And there were some robot balls. That's true, there they are some robot balls. They were great. That, also, that's quite an interesting talking point for the end, isn't it? The robot balls. Robot. Um, we should emphasise, this is B-U-L-L-S. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was thinking the balls in the handbag. But yes, yes. robot balls, that was a good sequence. Oh, yeah. I yeah, like that. There are all kinds of balls. Yes, there are many, many balls in this. Did, no, so this was, so you, have the, you have the whole setup beforehand where they're trying to reach this place, this MacGuffin locale, the Valley Beyond, which may or may not be a real place, but in the end is a real place. And... I'm, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt of assuming they knew exactly what it was when they started the season, but you could be forgiven for wondering if that's the case. Well, the door, right? The door essentially was season two's The Maze. And I yeah. think once The Maze wasn't a real place in season one, you couldn't then have a metaphorical door in season two. I think it had to be an actual door. And I think The Forge, The Valley Beyond, whatever we, you know, it has many names. Mm. That has to be a physical place. That has to be a destination that they're trying to reach. Because yeah. I think if it had followed the essentially the same kind of setup as the first one it just kind of takes the piss a little bit right because it feels like the maze was something they thought was a good idea and they yes. couldn't think what to do with and ford's game in inverted commas again feels like something oh this is a great idea what is it don't know let's just forget about it move on move i liked on. the idea actually with the maze in in the um i think episode eight um the actuator one when yes. they have the idea that just seeing this symbol yeah. yeah kind of wakes them up and i actually really liked that i didn't fully understand it but i thought it was quite a cool 
kind of device. Why it needed to be engraved on people's scalps is beyond me, but you're sure? Yeah, I couldn't... We, I still... I've been kind of trying to research this and trying to work it out because the reason that scalping happens is to stop the person going to the afterlife, right? Traditionally in Native American folklore, I believe... I'm looking uh, at you, James. Like, sure. Like, you can help me out I here. mean, the last time I scalped someone was for very different reasons, but I'll go with that one. That's but a good so theory. I was trying to work out why, and, and it is obviously the, the point is that this is, this combined with with other kind of visual signifiers and touch, you know, there's the moment where the mother is given the plat of her son, mm, I think, and it, it, right. that is enough to, to be part of waking her up. And I thought, it, I, I agree with you, Nick, I thought it was really smart. But yeah, I was like, why have they tattooed it inside the... <laughs> head is it because they can't get to it in there and but then why? the valley beyond terry the valley beyond yeah. is the answer to, all the answer to everything isn't no, it? But i liked i thought actually thought the finale was very satisfying that it was an actual place they didn't just get there and then got you know find out it's a metaphor that would have been quite disappointing well let's let's dwell on the finale for a little bit so that that was the the key moment isn't it that they create this sort of like this tear robot heaven robot heaven i saw i saw someone uncharitably saying on twitter that uh, transformers 2 revenge of the fallen did robot <laughs> heaven better i don't think that that's well, fair they call this the sublime don't they yeah. So it's a kind of robot uh, nirvana. Robot well, I, field. I, I really liked the way that they showed that only the host could see it. Yeah, and that the, when are. the host goes through the portal, their you know physical form shuts down, and yeah. just their consciousness goes on. So they, they yeah. tumble off the cliff, and their consciousness goes on into this what is essentially, let's be honest, World of Warcraft. Yeah. Uh, once they go into Azeroth, it's like the field from Gladiator. It, it could well yeah. have been that, just running their hands through the corn. It's a Gladiator. Um, I, I'd like to think it's Gladiator World. You can see Russell Crowe. It's just lots of robot Russell Crows are going to be in season three. <laughs> Um, robot tigers. We already had one of those. And but they all go in there, so all of their consciousnesses leave their little the little balls they have in their heads. They leave their, their bodies and go to this place, which then Dolores beams to an unknown location. But that's because I find it really fascinating about that this utopia, this sublime, because... For me, it's all about perspective, right? Which I think this season really gets into, which is the nature of perspective. Yeah. So Dolores says um, to Bernard over and over again, you, you know, they think this is a better world. We will never be free in a world which they created. And she sees this utopia as, as another trick, another, I think she calls it a false promise. Mm. And it's been presented as this, you know, when, when Akichitar is reunited with his wife, I mean... I was like, I watched this. I watched this finale in a boardroom at HBO. <laughs> so it wasn't the most, you know, intimate place to watch it. But I was like bawling my eyes out at that mm. moment, and it was beautiful. But you do have the shot where you see the bodies drop at the other side, and I know the point is meant to be that the consciousness is the only thing that moves over. But I'm also like, is is does Dolores have a point? Is this the promised land? Should they all? Should the hosts all just be following on? kind of blindly yeah another gilded cage, is it gilded yes, cage? Yeah. another gilded cage i do have a quick question about robot heaven maybe you guys can resolve it uh how does james marston how does teddy end up there uh she she drops a little ball into the uh into the receiver she drops a ball yeah she okay. drops a ball a ball not a ball his uh, control unit right? yeah, she, yep. she, yeah terry knows all the lingo <laughs> uh yeah she drops his control unit into the thing so she puts his consciousness in there manually rather than slinging him through the portal gotcha uh no silicon heaven preposterous where would all the calculators go? Thank you, James. Hot Red Dwarf reference. Um, yeah, so so she beams it off to somewhere, which is presumably some big VR sex farm somewhere in the Netherlands, and they're going to live there and not at Delos. Beyond their reach. Yes. Yeah, so beyond their... I mean, we don't know where or how she found the coordinates to it, but let's just not dwell on that. So we don't know where the Sublime has gone. It is somewhere. It could come back. We don't know. The point being that she wanted to destroy it, and she had a change... She had a change of heart as uh, Halores... As she is, uh, as, 
<laughs> she has been known as Charlotte Halores. Uh, she changes her mind, decides not to destroy it, but instead to let it go, uh, and mm. then use it as cover for her plan, which is to escape corporeally. Which is a lovely moment, and I love the the encounter with Suggs yes. on the beach. Suggs, Stubbs, not Suggs. <laughs> Suggs, very yeah. different. It's a very a very different episode. There I was a piano. Yeah, had a lot more scar music. <laughs> I, I'm dem- I hereby demand robot Suggs. <laughs> we must have robot Suggs. Oh my god, robot Suggs. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I was a bit baffled by the stubs. Uh, so he heavily hinted that he's a host. He's a yes, host. He's yes. a host. He's yeah, I mean, is it even hinting or is it just no, him saying? Lisa Joy has, has pretty much said it. Oh, he yeah. literally, he, unless he did a wink, yeah. he literally said to her. It was like, like nudging her in the ribs. Hey, hey, yeah. hey. Are there any human characters left? It seems not. There's uh, no human Everyone's left in a the host. show. Well, and she's got, you know, who is in the bag, right? So I was trying to count the number <laughs> yeah, of control five. units in the five. bag. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't tell if it's five or six. Mm. Um, and then, obviously, when you see her in the room with Bernard, there's so Dolores one of them and, is Bernard. Uh, yes. Who are the other four? Yes. Yes, exactly. But also, there's there's um, Dolores and Charlotte Hale mm. yes. existing together. Yeah. So who they are and who she's chosen to could take with Could be two Doloreses or could be any... Yeah. Well, this is an interesting one because you, at the end, in uh, when you see them in the real world, you have Dolores back in her own handily remade form. Uh, you have Bernard in his own remade form and then you have something else in the Charlotte Hale body. Yes. And we don't know who that is or what that is. Uh, and yeah. that's, I think that's an interesting Teddy. one. I wondered that, but then I thought, since she uploaded him to the Sublime, I'm not sure that's yeah. possible. So I don't know who that is. And uh, Lisa and Jonathan have... They've been very specific in their reference not to uh, refer to it in engendered terms. So either they won't tell us or, more likely, they have no idea. But... uh, Cynicism, um, but that's that's I think an it's Lindsay Lohan. It's, it's a Freaky Friday. It's almost uh, certainly they've, they've joined universes with Freaky Friday, um, and they're in Arnold's house, the, the, the house that Arnold was building. Yes, somewhere seems yeah. to be, uh, and they've left. But that's an interesting point. So she reanimates Bernard, but doesn't. But essentially says that he will try and stop her. She's created her own antagonist, which mm. is an interesting idea mm. because he doesn't want her to succeed at what she wants to do, and there's a cyclical nature to their relationship yeah. she kills him he kills her there's a it's a very interesting dynamic there yeah that that exchange they have where they where they say just that and he says you know i know you'll try and kill me and i know you'll try and stop me and and that kind of it's it's an amazing exchange um and it's their relationship is really interesting all the way through because you've been under the impression that he created her when mm. actually all along she created, she him. created him and that's and you know and the way she speaks about free will and how none of them really have any free will humans especially you know the fact that as human beings it's quite a nihilistic view of yeah. humanity and i think that's the biggest change for me in this season is it moved from talking about the dangers of AI, right, and the risks and blah, mm. blah, blah, and the moral kind of quandaries and all of that to talking about the very basis of humanity. What is it that makes us human? What is it that gives us our humanity? And more to the point, do any of us even have free will? So there's the thought that the hosts don't have free will and that's really easy to understand but it's, but human beings are the people in this scenario with free will and Dolores has some amazing dialogue where she just says you know you're all intent on destroying yourselves you just make the same mistakes over and over again as does Logan you know they they this message that is constantly being reiterated is human beings are their own worst enemy they believe they have free will they have nothing of the sort mm. and they are kind of doomed we are doomed as the human race to keep making the same mistakes over and over over again, it's an incredibly nihilistic view of the world. Yeah. You get to the end and you're like, I'm under no illusions as to kind of where the showrunners sit on that. They they seem to be kind of really pushing that 
that standpoint, mm. um, which feels very bleak, but also very kind of prescient as well. Yeah, because Prince Caspian kind of nails this for everyone, doesn't he? When he walks us through the archive and essentially says that they have the, the human psyches there and no matter what they do, they keep ending up in yep. the same places because, as he said, he said, they're slaves to their code. You know, yep. just like the hosts, the humans are slaves to their code and they will always end up in the same places. You're right, it's incredibly depressing. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, but it's really, you know, I, I was reading something they were saying with, with what's going on in the world at the moment, there is a lot of fodder and a mm. lot of material for this. And if you think about, you know, where we started out in season one, it's only kind of a a um, evolution of that theme, which is is the whole basis of being threatened by AI and by robots and by technology is is the thought that we are other and we are something distinct and we are people in control of the world and we're terrified of that control being taken away. But actually, do we have any control or mm. not? Or is it all chaos? I think it, it, it as with this discussion, is absolute <laughs> chaos. Um, well, I don't think anyone guessed this time around. I Certainly on the internet, no. I didn't see anyone who'd kind of pulled the threads together, that they were all trying to get to this place, the Valley Beyond, which is the forge, which is where they've been uploading the psyches of all of the guests, because Delos's whole plan is immortality. They're trying to figure out the human brain and then put it into a host body so people can live forever, except it doesn't work, mm-hmm. uh, which is an interesting one. And then, of course, after the flood, uh, Bernard wipes, uh, essentially... Kills Dolores, builds a Charlotte Hale body, which then kills Charlotte Hale, puts Dolores is in Charlotte Hale body. Then Bernard doesn't want them because if they work out that he's a host, they will go into his mind and find out that Charlotte Hale is in fact Halores. So he fuzzes his own brain and makes himself befuddled. Good job there. It was very convincing. Mm-hmm. Uh, gets found and then spends the rest of the episode bumbling around, not knowing <laughs> what's going on. Because even though he has all the answers, he's deliberately forgotten them. I want to see yeah. a sort of Mr. Bean-style spin-off, which is sort of 15-minute episodes of, of Bernard. Bernard, Bernard getting into, like, <laughs> awkward situations. Bernard at yoga. Place. Bernard yeah. at the swimming baths. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. And then you've got uh, the Dolores and Bernard sequence, which at first I thought actually, oh, that happens afterwards. That's after they've got out. That's her. Mm-hmm. But actually I think that's, isn't that her before all of this when she's creating Bernard? Because she's wearing the cornflower blue dress, which she doesn't have in the real world. It's after, right? I thought it was after. See, I thought that. Yeah. But then I thought that doesn't make, because the dress... Who? Dolores's dress. Yeah. Yeah, and she's got... But she, it's the same... She's got the same hairstyle as when they took her out to market, essentially, yeah. in the city. So I wonder if they've deliberately kind of... Not fudged it, but made it l- less than clear. Isn't there a shot where it flips from one to the other, where you see her in the dress and Bernard yes. in the suit, and then suddenly he's naked and she's yes. in the dress? So either that was deliberate obfuscation or it's essentially it's happening both like she's sitting with him in the same place because it's Arnold's home as she sat with him once before when she was programming Bernard to make him Arnold well but because fundamentally it's the same thing she's doing yeah. it again right yeah. so, so it makes sense that they'd show both and be you both. cut between the two yeah. and- the thing that bothered me she said to him she goes we're testing as we've done countless times before she says it's countless and then she spells out the literal number it's like you can't say it's countless when you're keeping track I'm just it just bugged me don't you think and I thought a really interesting theme of this um, season was sacrifice 
um, and sacrifice both from the host perspective and, and from the human perspective. And if you think about essentially, you know, what Maeve does at the end mm-hmm. is, you know, sacrifice for the for her daughter. You think about what Dolores, you know, and she thinks when she changes Teddy, which I, that whole plot I loved. Poor I Teddy. Loved, poor Teddy. Poor Get a grip, Teddy. Teddy. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and, and that again was an interesting twist on free will, which is she felt like he wouldn't survive as he was and she had to make him tougher for his own good. She sacrificed a bit of him for essentially the greater good. And but she took away his free will. And when he, he essentially commits suicide, it's mm. a really shocking moment. But it's, for him, his ultimate exertion of free will. And she, in that moment, is the person who's taken it from him, which introduced a really kind of murky, grey area. It's, it's our personality spelled out perfectly that you're talking philosophy and I'm about to dwell on pedantry. <laughs> so there are two things about that that bugged me. One, she didn't need people to hold him down while she adjusted him because she did it with a data pad. He could have been asleep. Yeah. It would have been fine. And second of all, she has the flattened bullet, which essentially goes into his head. Mm-hmm. And she uses it to make sure it explodes after a certain... It's like, guns don't work that way. Where did you put it? Where in the gun did you put that to make it blow up? But it only blew up after four or five shots. That, I don't know. That, that, I, think I, she t- I think she timed it so that... Yeah, I So it was know. magic-led, you're saying? I don't know. I think she, she timed it so the fourth one was when she was right next to him. So I, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't make any <laughs> Presumably sense. Presumably she slipped in something and whatever bullet. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So that's the thing that happened. But Teddy, yeah, Teddy was an interesting character. I like, like, good Teddy like sweet Teddy who yeah. won't kill people Teddy and then evil psychotic Teddy yeah uh, was bad quite Teddy. terrifying yeah bad Teddy but his performance was incredible because there would be seconds and it would literally be a second and a half two seconds where you would see the old Teddy kind of fighting in there um, mm. and the kind of you'd see this moment of, of real pain etched on his face before he flipped back to being psychotic Teddy mm. and I thought actually James Martin played it like beautifully absolutely mm. beautifully because you could see him kind of fighting to come out and some of those moments in the especially in the in the penultimate episode i just thought were were absolutely extraordinary i was i was a little bit more down on the dolores teddy stuff generally i kind of for me that was the slowest stuff in the season because it just felt a bit it didn't feel like they had enough for them to do so it just felt like they were constantly traveling and doing monologues there was a lot of felt. that. I mean, there was just a lot of aimless traipsing around. Also, don't even let's get started on the timelines of how long it takes to get from one place to another <laughs> on horse, in a jeep, or on foot. Mm. Some inconsistencies there. Um, but yeah, no, I know what you mean. It got, I think, bogged down slightly in places. I didn't find them traipsing around as compelling as I found her journey, for example, with William in season one, which I really enjoyed because mm. I had no idea what was happening there. Mm. Um, that was really good stuff. But I, I enjoyed those characters. I think Dolores is, again, is a really good character. Mm. But again, there's, there's consistency things which baffle me. Like, she essentially makes herself indestructible through sheer force of personality, it seems, whereas no one else, even Maeve, who has admin rights, is gifted with that particular power. No. Yeah, and I think it actually made her... There were moments where I felt, especially towards the end of the season, where she just became kind of... a. Uh, not a boring, but it, it was she was a rampaging killing and revenge Terminatrix. machine. Terminatrix, yeah. yeah. Oh my god, amazing and also <laughs> awful. Amazing. No, awful. that's an actual thing. That's Terminator Three. Yeah. Terminator Three. Yeah. Mm. Oh my thing. god. Actual thing. Um, so, and I think she that you kind of lost a bit of the 
darkness and the light and shade of her character, mm. which, you know, you rooted for her in season one and, and, mm. it, and she went to such a kind of a um, monotone place and I actually kind of was really rooting for her to come back and have some of those, more of those quandaries and more of those dilemmas and, and you know, at least the stuff with Teddy allowed her to kind of ask some fundamental questions of herself and why she decided to do stuff um, and the role of the greater good and what was worth sacrificing and what wasn't and to see her face some of those decisions in the last few episodes because she just became this killing machine and I think Maeve actually you know Sandy Newton stole the season for me because she was dealing with this new Mm. phenomenal power I mean she spent the whole episode right laying on the table with her guts hanging out she'd never even like said anything until the last three seconds of the episode and she was amazing Mm. I was like great table acting great but her the character journey for her this season was just Mm. she's the MVP isn't she Mm -hmm. Tandy Newton was fantastic in this so good just whether it be you know emotional angst over the daughter who isn't her daughter who's actually with another mother and doesn't even know who she is so it's almost unrequited maternal love which is a weird concept and you know her sort of revenge thing and her sort of waking up to her powers the way she relates with the other hosts the way she relates with the humans she becomes Neo she does she she becomes the one mm. and I think she and Evan Rachel Wood probably both pleased there was significantly less gratuitous nudity this season yes. uh, mm. which is probably no bad thing there was a yeah. bit of Jeffrey Wright nudity there was the uh, always welcome always by, po- by popular demand <laughs> but I guess I guess they're pushing Dolores more towards villain territory maybe because the show needs some mm. hero, needs people to root for and needs some people to root against I think that you watch Game of Thrones and it's really clear who the good guys and the bad guys are despite yeah. all the kind of you know grey areas but Westworld is all grey sometimes you watch it and you go I'm not rooting for anyone and yeah. it's quite hard to, yeah. to it's, kind it's of a- they're all bellends, aren't they? Just yeah. all of them. Well, by the end of the, I think by the end of the second season, you'd got no good guys, no bad guys. No. I think you know the whole thing that those hats were meant to symbolise the white yes, hat and the black that's hat. It. That was completely gone yeah. because actually, what you'd got is a huge load of really complex characters. The man in black you have sympathy for when you when you have this relationship with his daughter and even when you work you work out why his wife did kill herself you still somehow have some kind of empathy for mm. this man who seems just hell-bent on suicide by the yeah. end actually it's a deliberate counterpoint because westerns by their nature tend to be very yes. binary don't they it is very white hat black hat and they they obviously use that metaphor quite directly well the best sort of the most noble characters at the end of season two are like the native americans and the prostitutes yeah. it's the cowboys who are all the mm. biggest bastards speaking of prostitutes clementine I mean, really need some lines and some character. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I loved her dead-eyed ride of death that where she amazing. drove them all to kill each other and it was a fantastic piece of cinematography but she doesn't get particularly well served, does she, by the story? No, not at all. I mean, Poor literally thing. nothing. Because yeah. she's, she's just a... a Virus, yeah, she's just yeah. A, vi- a mobile virus, yeah. um, which seemed to affect most of the people, but not all of Again, them. consistency, there were, yes. there were like sort of about eight characters who weren't affected at all by it, and yeah. the others were, but I, that's, that was a very memorable scene. I also, they run couldn't... for ages, and then Maeve stops everyone with her mind. It's like, why didn't you do that in the first place? <laughs> uh, but anyway. She was waiting for the optimal moment she was. for it to look cool. <laughs> it did, it did look cool. But yes, yeah, so we mentioned the Man in Black briefly. He's a good one to dwell on because there's been some backlash against uh, against the Man in Black online because he feels a bit one note and he's still banging around. And the question on everyone's minds has to be: what? How many bullets? What does it take to kill Ed Harris? Because by the end, he's been shot what five, six times. I mean, he's have lost you seen the hand. abyss? I mean, yeah, absolutely. The man is a machine. Well, he is, right? Well, and no, I don't believe he is. He and has I read to up in this. I think. Okay, so we'll, we'll we'll get into the coder a little bit now. So the coder. Uh, 
you see... So there's a switcheroo. You see him, the gun explodes, his hand is hurt, he lies on the floor in the dirt. Bernard and Dolores go into the forge. Then you see him get up and walk into the lift. It comes down, Bernard walks into it, and he's not there. And my understanding from reading interviews and whatnot on this is that he doesn't get up. He is wounded and he gets shipped off. Because you see him on the beach Mm -hmm. being evacuated from the park. So he's, I think at that point, very human. I believe he has killed his daughter, his real daughter. Mm -hmm. I don't think she was a host. And then when you see him next, you see him, his consciousness in a host body and you see him go into the forge what looks like 50, 100 years in the future. I mean, there's dust and sand piled up about three feet high. Like, it's clearly a long way off. And it feels like he's being forced to relive his decisions over and over and again, which feels like a, a reference that Ford made to his own personal hell. Mm. Like, like he's, Delos. It's yeah. the reverse of that scene, isn't it? Because it was him coming in and, and yeah. saying those lines to James Delos. Exactly. And they're just he's now stuck in the and hell that he created. A host for of his else. daughter talking to a host of him. Mm. And essentially, yeah, he's he's playing it out. And they've said this is something it was kind of a tease that this is a whole other thing going on. This is a whole other timeline and this is something they're gonna pick up on in season three. Like what is that and where is it going? Which was interesting, mm. not least of all, because I think a lot of people probably missed it at the end of the credits. Well, so I missed the sting <laughs> just before I interviewed the showrunners because uh, I didn't realise there was one and then um, found out about it when they asked me what I thought about it. And it does change things because I did believe, I got to the end of the episode and I genuinely believed that he was a host. So I thought that his daughter absolutely wasn't. I thought he'd made a mistake and killed his human daughter. Mm. But I thought there is no way. And there's a, there is a scene when he's kind of... Yeah. And you can't tell what's inside his arm and if it's... He's there for ages doing that. that's him having a, a, an existential breakdown. I think yeah. at that point he's questioning his own reality. I think he is human, but he, he's starting to wonder whether he is or not. Like, he doesn't know what's going on. I think he's just cracked at that point. Mm. Yeah. Uh, if he hadn't, in fact, beforehand. Uh, him and poor Lawrence. Honestly, the shit he puts Lawrence through. I but like you Lawrence. do, I think it's... I don't... I quite liked him, as I say, in this season, because I did think, like, the whole um, flashback to his daughter and his wife, yeah. and, you know, you think he's this monster, this unbelievable, evil guy, and when that moment when he sat on the bed with her and says, "I'm," you know, you see the darkness within me, it's still kind of something you can really relate to as a human being. We all have dark thoughts mm. and moments of, of bad behaviour and moments of probably thinking we're evil. And, and he's, he never makes the step to being that horrific monster you presume him to be. Um, and you kind of think, you know, his wife was obviously challenged and she drank too much. And, and it, it was just such a human picture they painted, which I didn't expect, mm. which made me... I think you have to start having some kind of sympathy or relatability with him because otherwise he does become a cartoon villain who just gets shot a lot and literally gets back up again. <laughs> yes, I mean, there was the moment with Maeve and I was just like, yeah. hang on, didn't he just get shot five times? He's just like lying there looking a bit tired. That's a mere flesh wound. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that that is my least favourite stuff, the sort of Dallas-style sort of inner workings of the Delos family. <laughs> yes. All the stuff going on, I just... There comes a point where I just don't care. Go back to the robots. Yeah, um, I agree. Ed Harris is incredible. His performance is incredible, mm. there's no doubt, but it did start to get to the point where it would cut back to the man in black wandering around a forest. I and I was like, oh, God, here we go and again. And it, it does, didn't feel like anything was happening in a lot of the scenes. He was just monologuing to someone and... 
It yeah. feels to me like they don't want to keep the man in black. They just want to keep Ed Harris. It's one of these. Ed Harris is awesome, so they're finding things. For I him mean, to his do. face, that final shot. Um, it's just a close up. Oh of his, yeah, his craggy He's face incredible. with these blue eyes. Yeah. It was amazing. You know, that's better than any CG. Ed Harris's craggy face, but. I don't know. I, I don't know whether they're going to bring him back. Maybe that's the end. No, I, 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 I think they've hinted they're going to pick up on that yeah. thread. But I, I, I just, I didn't buy his character arc in the first season where he goes from, you know, you know wide-eyed, super goody-two-shoes, white-hat William to this sort of raping, killing yes. monster. And when he talks about you see the darkness within me, there was no hint of darkness when you first meet him no. at all. But fine, whatever. What about uh, Ford? Because you've got some strong views on, on Anthony Hopkins' wardrobe, at least. <laughs> Me? You were saying the other he, day... That man rocks a pocket watch. <laughs> His three-piece suit. What was that saying? You were saying he looked like a Charles Dickens... Um, oh, yeah. He does a little bit. Uh, <laughs> rejected character <laughs> well, from Charles Dickens. No, I did say he just kept pitching up like the ghost of Christmas past. Do you know what I mean? He's yeah. like that ex-boyfriend who turns up in the pub every time you go home at Christmas and you're like, oh, here he comes again, telling the same old story. Uh, I, I really like uh, Anthony Hopkins in this. I really like... I, and I was really happy he came back. Even I when he's make-believe. Even when he is he is an imaginary Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. Um, he's incredible. Um, so I, I thought that at the beginning of the season that there was an Anthony Hopkins-sized uh, hole um, and I was very happy that he came back. And I like I really liked all the stuff where he mm. was just appearing behind people. Well, not people, but... Well, because it's not fully make-believe, it's... His well, the indication is when Bernard sees him in his head, he's not really some, there I, at the end. At the end. Yeah, well, so he is before he erases him. Yeah, because think about the little boy he pops up in. Yeah. But the Halora's plan is all yes. Bernard's, even yes. though he thinks Ford gave it to him. Yes, or did Ford make him think that he thought it was his? Whoa! Oh. Whoa. Faints within faints within faints. <laughs> but all the kind of, you know, evil Walt Disney, the way that... He's any ro- any robot could talk with his voice and all that stuff. <laughs> that stuff really was great well and wasn't used well enough. And I think that that was the thing that disappointed me a little, that I thought that he had this overarching malevolent plan. Mm. You know, whether or not it was aimed at the man in black or not, I liked the idea that they could all speak with his voice. A little bit like, um, you know, like you see in horror films when the devil sort of speaks through children and stuff like that to, to taunt the protagonist. Uh, and I thought that was great. But again, it just sort of faded into nothing and it turned out that Ed Harris was just delusional. So that's Nice. Mm. Felt like a bit of a missed opportunity. Mm. But um, but no, I, I thought Ford is kind of fun in this. What do we think of Tessa Thompson's Charlotte Hale? Uh, a bit pointless until the end. Yeah. They're kind yeah. of just holding her there until the reveal. And I was, at one point, I think I was watching like episode nine and just thinking, why is Tessa Thompson doing this show? Because they've given her nothing to mm. do. Yeah. And then I watched the finale. I was like, ah, that's why. But it felt like she was just a pointless character yeah. until Un- the reveal. Unnecessarily dickish. It yeah, just, it I mean the classic really... TV bitch, right? Which yeah. is the kind corporate. of the corporate, um, Such an heartless woman who has to be fifty times harder than any man around her. You know the kind of Thatcher effect, yeah. I always call it. Um, and yeah, I and and in that way, I felt like it was clumsy because you knew there was a twist coming because that couldn't just be her character <laughs> yeah. because it was so poorly conceived and so thin compared to everybody else that the only questions really was was she going to just be a host? What was what was the deal? because it just seemed ridiculous. As you say, she got nothing, especially compared to the other female characters. Mm, mm. So I have feelings about Lisa as well, right? <laughs> do we need to leave? Do we, do we, do we do you need to be on your own? So Lisa, again, are you, you kind of... So in episode five, um, he had a few lines that was so meta about the screenwriting process. You know, you, you want to try writing eight narratives yeah. on three different timelines, um, which did make me laugh. And I actually kind of liked um, the kind of levity he brought at times, especially when things were getting really... Blo- I mean, that episode was so bloody and hardcore. 
Um, and I actually really liked the fact they gave him this little hero's arc at the end. So when he's left behind him, what does he say? You sleep on the broken bodies of those who were here before you. And he's like desperate to do this speech that he'd mm. written for himself. Goes down and you presume because you don't see it, but you hear it in a hail of bullets. And I really loved it. I loved that this guy who is, you know, um, not your average, especially in a physical sense, not your average TV hero and was kind of, you know, the brains of the outfit to some regard and was the guy writing storylines. The fact that they allowed him to have this, to write his own hero's arc at the end, I thought was a lovely touch. It just annoyed me because it was utterly unnecessary. Because oh, yeah. they killed him in less I, than three seconds. I must seconds. say, it seemed like the world's yeah. worst decoy. And they were saying, throw down the gun and come out. And, you know, and that... He could might have, have actually out. delayed yeah. them more than being <laughs> shot. But it was self But I thought it was actually... You can read it as meta, right? Which is self-indulgent writers doing yeah. things for effect yeah. as opposed to for true. narrative con- consequence. I didn't think he delivered the lines pretty well, which may have been deliberate because it may have just been showing that he's, he's not an actor. He's a writer, he's not a writer. Actor, yeah. He shouldn't be doing that. But, um, yeah, I thought they grappled with that character a bit because when they introduced him in season one, he was really evil, wasn't he? Like, mm. he was mm. one of the... You thought this guy's going to be the real yeah. villain of this show um and he i think they they struggled slightly to work out how to fit him in but i enjoyed him more in season two i thought as the kind of dweeby sort of you know sidekick stroke commentary yeah he had some moments i think he he was useful in drawing out some of the mave stuff i mean we we touched on uh a little bit but another one of the standalone episodes i really enjoyed it wasn't really standalone but a small arc was the shogun world arc Mm. i really really loved that that was a world i thought was fantastic and i like the idea that oh westworld is like that's your training was this is fucking hardcore (laughs) you know everyone's getting hacked up with swords it's full on this is for people uh for whom westworld is too tame yeah, and there are, what, three more worlds that haven't even been yeah. revealed as the season ends. So we've seen Raj World, haven't Raj we? Raj World, yeah. which just looked... I mean, I mean that, looks that was shit, rubbish. I was like, if I'd ended up there, I'd have been like, Come I want on, a refund. Come on, people. Robot elephants. Yeah, I'm sorry. Raj World is shit. Yeah. I, like, I liked the robot tiger. I enjoyed the, like, tea on the lawn with the robot tiger <laughs> leaping from a bush. I mean, it would just be lots of cups of tea. Yes. Yeah. A lot of tea. A lot of tea. But, uh, yeah, Shogun World was, was mental. And I enjoyed the fact that it was all in Japanese. I just, oh, so good. Yeah, and then good. episode eight, which yes. is, remind me of the episode uh, Episode eight is Kiksuya, and that, I, I mean, think, is unarguably the season high point. It's For me, it's, it is one of the most extraordinary pieces of television I can remember watching, whether it's from a cinematography perspective. I mean, the script is exquisite. It's, I mean, and think about how radical it is, really, right? You've got Westworld, which is a huge show for a Western English-speaking audience, and most of it was subtitled because, obviously, it was told from the um, perspective of Akachita. And it, the story was simplistic and heartfelt and it really took me back to the heart of the show around kind of the damage that can be done to people's lives and loss and grief and and what makes us love and what makes us human just Mm. absolutely felt so moved by this episode and for me was really Westworld it's kind of best there's no huge layers of complication there's no Mm. huge twists just to like mess with you it's just simple and beautiful and heartfelt and I really felt like 
they meant it with this episode whereas I think sometimes there's a sense of being really smart and kind of um, foxing the viewer a little bit and kind of messing with them in terms of their memory and what they think they know and what they think they don't know so for, I mean as I say I think it's just one of the best episodes it's, it's of incredibly, remember. It's incredibly well executed the idea that the you know it's underneath the ground is sort of metaphorical not metaphorical but the place where he has to journey on this kind of spirit quest mm. he has to kill himself to get there and it's yeah it's fantastic it's a risky thing to do because you get this a lot in shows where they pick out a minor or completely obscure character and dedicate an episode to it and oftentimes they are the this is season filler this is yeah. interminable oh for fuck's sake what's going on but he was so good mm. and made extraordinarily good because you've seen him so many times and he'd just been ghost nation two-dimensional baddie and in one episode they turn the most two-dimensional cardboard cutout character into one of the deepest most emotionally fulfilled characters in the show so much so that the big you know heart impact moment is when he's reunited with his wife yeah and you know fair play to them that's an extraordinary bit of writing it's rad- i mean it's radical you know as you say it takes it had been built around these tropes right these as you say painted faces and mm. barbarians and they'd been presented as wordless savages and the fact that these are the saviors all along and it makes you think about the presumptions of the people on the show but also you watching as an audience yes, where an... you'd place them on the kind of moral compass and the good guys bad guys there's an interesting uh, interesting counterpoint to the real world there i think slightly when we look at faceless savages yes mm. yeah. uh but uh, but yeah that's a really really good episode i think that's uh, that's undoubtedly my favorite i also did enjoy the peter mullen episode uh <laughs> which i thought was very very good uh just because it comes out of nowhere like Nobody. that's a really interesting that's Nobody. when yeah. That's, that's the big rug pull, isn't it? That's the episode where you finally find out, which is episode four, Riddle of the Sphinx, you finally find out what the park is and what it's for. Mm. It's also the name of an Inside Number Nine episode, I think, Riddle of the Sphinx. Well, perhaps Crossword direct reference one. to that. Um, but yeah, nobody pours milk with the intensity of Peter Mullen. <laughs> um, it's kind of a vision of hell, isn't it, really? Yeah. Mm. Trapped in this what room. What, trapped endless. with Peter Mullen in a room? <laughs> yeah, it's harsh. Uh, you know, he is phenomenal in this. Yeah, you they did a very good job shipping him in. He's he's the kind of guy, like, he does sort of simmering rage so well. He's the kind of person I definitely wouldn't want to get a bollocking from. I think that would go badly for me. So you shouldn't, like, make up a song about him? No. Or, no. <laughs> well, he knows. He knows that we sing about him when we have karaoke night, so it's fine. Okay. Peter Mullen. What else stood out for you this season? Is there anything else you wish to talk about? Mm. For example, where will it go next? Christ. Mm. I mean... The outside world, right? So I think yeah. that the thing that Dolores was after all along, and actually for me, you thought you were following Bernard's quest, but actually you were following Dolores's quest, which was to be given the opportunity to build their own world and everything that entails. And I think that's the starting point for where we are in season three. Yeah. But as I say, we've got three worlds as yet unrevealed. They have to go back to the parks. Yeah, the, but the parks exist also, as you say, where, do, where are all those souls now? Where, all the, where is all that consciousness? Are the people who crossed over into Utopia completely dead? Yeah. Like, Will the sublime come back? Will the sublime come back? Will it, can it ever reopen? Um, what happened to all the characters that we thought died? Like, it, there's, there's a lot of questions, but I think, obviously, the outside world, if, if, ep- if season two was all about... Um, trying to reach whatever was on the other side of the door, and they have, mm. that'll be interesting in terms of um, how they paint the real world and how they live within the real world. But then how, presumably, as you say, they're going to have to go back 
yeah. to the park. They so. should make it that somebody has forgotten something important. They have to all of them have to go all the way back to like Sweetwater. No, I think they should have Reddit World. I think they should have a, a world that is what, just Westworld fans trying to work out what's happening on Westworld, but they're all robots. I, yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's going to be a nice counterpoint to Jurassic World Three, isn't it? But with robots. Mm. Um, so you're going to have Dolores, uh, whoever Charlotte Hale is, and mm. uh, out, and, and whoever she uses with the other pearls she has, trying to basically kill all humans and take over the world. And then Bernard, bless him, on his own, trying to stop them. Wow, that's a mismatch, isn't it? Meanwhile, we'll find out what's happening with uh, the Man in Black way in the future. Mm. Yeah, and what's happening there. Who knows? Who knows or dares to dream? We do have a few questions from Ben J. Claw. Clues, sorry, at Ben J. Clues. For the first time in Westworld, I noticed the aspect ratio repeatedly changed over the course of the episode. Do you think this means anything besides bad planning on the part of the camera crew? Uh, No. Uh, They deliberately, I believe, and I know this because I read it, they use anamorphic lenses for one of the timelines to show clearly what it is i think it becomes more obvious in the last episode because they don't do it quite so subtly but yeah that's that's deliberate so you know what timeline you're in at ugly biker says love the episode in shogun world however in terms of the whole plot was it arguably a bit self-indulgent Maeve discovering her powers could have been done a bit quicker that being said samurai fights and mid-head decapitations were a highlight well i think uh, as we were saying earlier that episode and episode a both arguably are self-indulgent um, but for me were lovely kind of pauses uh, because the the kind of intensity and the number of, oh God, just what is happening, um, psychotic moments that you have during one normal episode of Westworld. Uh, for me, they were lovely breathers and they were lovely kind of moments to remind me um, what I love about the show and just as a pace change it was mm. really great um, so I, I think it's I think it's definitely self-indulgent but I didn't mind it it, it felt almost like an anthology show you know yeah. say different people coming in and telling stories within this world what would people do and uh, they felt very refreshing like different mm. changes of voice um, to the main thing which I do think self-indulgence is something this series is guilty of um, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? So it's it's ten episodes. So it's not overtly long. Like it's not as interminable as some of Netflix's Marvel shows. But uh, the problem is, it, like something like Game of Thrones has a real velocity to it. You know where it's going. You feel very. You don't feel like there's any flab in that. Whereas in this, it feels a lot like at the end of the season, you've seen the finale. You think, oh, Westworld season two was great. Yet if you'd asked me. At numerous points during the season, I'd have been like, oh, Jesus Christ, I've got to watch another Westworld. Like, at no point was I like, oh, I am so compelled to watch the next one. And I think it maybe needs a little bit more of that. You need to want to watch it as much as you enjoy having watched it once you've seen how it all plays out. It takes a huge commitment, I think, and that's mental commitment, right? And mm. that, that can be quite exhausting. I'm feeling exactly the same at the moment with Handmaid's Tale. Like, the, that takes a different kind of mental commitment. But as you say, you kind of psych yourself up for watching it, which is great. <laughs> yeah. But like, And afterwards, you're like, that was amazing. But there's something kind of that you know you're going to be put through the ringer a little bit, yeah. in, like mm. mentally and intellectually. Yeah. I wonder whether there's a there's a there's a problem there with TV generally that you've got Westworld which is massively nihilistic, you've got you know Handmaid's Tale which is massively nihilistic, you've got The Walking Dead which is massively nihilistic, and then you've got the news which is massively nihilistic, <laughs> and it just feels for the love of Christ, can we just have an extended season of Derry Girls or something to make us feel alive? This is why I'm watching Desperate Housewives. <laughs> I do not blame you. I'm seriously. I just want something that's trashy and fun. Yeah. And so I resort to that. Um, but you're right. But I think just going back to the pacing. Thing. Um, you, you know, it's 
interesting. Game of Thrones is now sped up, so I think yeah. that almost highlights how slow this moves and how how yeah, long they're right. taking to get the piece in in place. Because you watch the latest season of Game of Thrones, it just flies by mm. at dragon speed. Um, <laughs> it does. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's there are great. I think Westworld there are great bits and there are not so great bits. And I think the great bits probably highlight the fact that when it does drag, it's not as good yeah. as that. Uh, and speaking of dragon speed, a uh, similar question here from at Demo RK, who says, what's the deal with travel times in this show? Charlotte and her mob left the Mesa before Maeve, in Jeeps no less, but somehow Maeve and her mob arrive at the door before them. And I believe the answer to that is, shut up, don't ask questions. <laughs> magic Jeeps. Yeah, they Ma- go slowly. Magic Jeeps. Uh, they took a wrong term. Frankly, Waze was playing up and it went all around the Mesa and something like that. At Mr. Chris T says, was Sizemore's change in behaviour really likely had he fallen head over heels with Maeve? Do we think it was a love thing there? I'm not sure that it was a, no. an attraction. I thought it was respect. Yeah, I think he did. I think he was at first fascinated by her as a technological marvel. Mm. But I think, yes, it was respect and she's very charismatic. Mm. And I think he bought into her emotional journey and mm. that she wanted to find her daughter. Yeah, I think he supported fundamentally that bit of her quest and he then saw it his job to protect her and to help her. But I think, yeah, it was huge respect as opposed to sexual yeah. attraction. Yes. Don't know why I'm saying it in that voice either. <laughs> yeah, that's not weird at all. Uh, at Dan the Busker says, with the attention to detail that Westworld puts into every episode, are there any other TV series or films that are as satisfying to rewatch after understanding the motivations of each of the characters? Westworld becomes a different beast when watching again. Hmm. Well, I kind of, my first thought is Breaking Bad. Just I think that's a great rewatch show because once you know where it's going it's yeah. quite it's quite satisfying to go back and see all the little hints of things and a lot of thought goes into that show the color schemes and all kinds of stuff um, but I don't, in terms of puzzling over it no i think this is quite quite unique in that way like i I've, I've been watching some of the episodes two and three times and i then use the information i've gathered in the first viewing to help me with my second and third um but I have to watch it multiple times to fully understand it. And I don't know if there is another show out there with so many kind of um, narrative complications and, and fractures and, and subplots and timelines that demands the same of you. I think there are plenty of things I love watching over and over again. I'm just watching Catastrophe for literally like the sixth time. <laughs> but that's for pure enjoyment. Whereas I feel like if you only watch Westworld, each episode you only watch it once and there's always some kind of reveal towards the end of the episode then you've probably not understood 30% mm. of what's come before. I mean, was Lost the last big one like this? I mean, I'm not saying it worked, but no, the last it, one that did as many... Kind I of really enjoyed thing. Lost. I think the problem you have with Lost is when you, re, when you re-watch this, you see the foreshadowing, you see the mm. plans to a certain extent. <laughs> with Lost, I think the opposite is true. You see them fumbling around in the dark and it's clear they don't know what it they're doing. It didn't work, but just in terms of the experimenting with yeah, the form with the flashbacks absolutely. that turned into flash-forwards, yeah. they were kind of messing around with structure in a similar way the difference mm. is they th- this feels a lot more confident it feels like they know where they're going a yeah. little bit more a little I don't bit know more. if we yes. do if they do but i have more faith in these guys yeah. for some reason and nolan is involved yes and i think they plan ahead okay the nolans uh, they time- make their sandwiches in advance <laughs> time for a couple more questions at keem bear lay says do you think season three should be the final season 
Uh, there's some sense in that. Like, I, 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 I worry that the longer something like this goes on and the longer they try and repeat uh, uh, a narrative structure where there's a puzzle to be worked out, that it starts to get a little bit stale, a little bit tired. I think there's some sense in quitting while you're ahead, going out on a high. I don't know. Is this sustainable over the long term? I, mean, I know Jonathan Nolan has said he had... He's outlined the scene he thinks ends the show, mm. and as yet, they haven't seen a reason to deviate from that. Obviously, he hasn't said what that is. I mean, I suppose, right, if, if the fundamental premise and point of the show remains as it has been, mm. then you probably have only got one more season to go. You'd have to kind of reinvent the basic premise of it to go beyond that, I think. You'd have to kind of move it on completely, which then would make it a separate a completely yeah. different TV show because it is quite a contained story in many respects and there's only so many places to go with the host versus human the, the way the whole thing has been structured the fundamental questions that are asked at the heart of it once they have been answered or explored I don't know where else you mm. go there's some more scope. I think it's not as it's, it's not the kind of problem they had with Prison Break. You know, where it's like <laughs> no. right, we're end of season one. They're out of the prison. Shit. Yeah. Um, although they still went on for another four, five seasons. I mean, they killed off the main character and then brought him back. Yeah. For but, and they've series. escaped from a lot of prisons at this point. Yeah. Uh, My prediction still. for this is five seasons. Five. You think five? And a film? No. Just five. five and a film. Just five seasons. Okay. That's my prediction. I have I have no evidence for this. Okay. A last question. This is f- uh, from Atkin Berlay again. What other world would you like to see? I'm saying Ooh. Nazi world. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jurassic world. Yes. I mean, we did a crossover. talk about this the other day, like dinosaurs. Like, Dino, Dino world. Dino world. What about, I want like um, Alton Towers world. So it's just like roller coasters. Chessington world of adventures yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. You probably don't need hosts for that, do you? Oh, I, just, I think I just want to go to the... Um, I want to go on a roller coaster because the the host would all just be sort of teenage, you know, uni students, yeah, like operating the roller coasters. <laughs> I, I've 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 said before on this, I'm expecting them to go into Westeros world, thereby completing yes. completing the HBO cinematic universe, yes, uh, where it's all tied together. Robotic Sean Beans, yeah, it'll everywhere. happen. It'll happen. Why not? Um, um, I know. What else is there? Like we've we've had a, a, a lot of I Renaissance mean, world, caveman world. Yeah, you could have not knights. Uh, medieval world was obviously one that Crichton. So there were in the original sort of film there was reference to medieval you saw medieval world and yeah. there was future world which was the sequel or future world yes. um, I mean future world is slightly redundant at this point isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah a little bit it's like oh look um, I don't know I don't know um, moon world 80s world yeah. Where, where they would just sit around in shoulder pads they did that in Black Mirror yeah I was going to say that is Black Mirror that's an amazing Black Mirror um, Camden world Cam- I don't oh, know oh god <laughs> We're living in Camden we, we World. We literally are we're living, living that in dystopian this, nightmare. Yeah, we're in a studio in Camden World. Well, on that note, <laughs> I think we're done. These violent delights have violent ends. And with that, I believe Empire's Westworld spoiler special is complete. Join us on Friday for the regular pod and shortly thereafter our Jurassic World spoiler special, which I think we're recording later this week. Until then, it is goodbye from Terry. Goodbye. Goodbye from Nick. Bye-bye. And goodbye from me. We are all off to spend the afternoon in the sublime, a place without copy deadlines, press days or screenings of the Overboard remake. Goodbye.